Welcome to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. This podcast contains adult themes and is intended for mature audiences only. There is some graphic details about real crimes. Listener discretion is advised. This one has been on my mind for many years. First, the movie that I saw, which was based on the murder, I was probably 13 or 14, and I was babysitting at a house that had a Showtime channel on cable. And I'm going to date myself here because cable and premium channels were still somewhat new, especially where we were in the suburbs of the Midwest. Anyway, I was babysitting, and the kids were very little, and they were asleep. And I wanted to explore this Showtime channel. I found this movie that had already started, but it was still interesting. And there was a young woman living in New York City. She was frequenting bars sometimes after work and in the evening. Sometimes she would be drinking wine and reading her book at the bar. And this was so far from the world I that I lived in, and I found it fascinating thinking that I wanted to possibly be like her in some ways. I didn't want to get married young or have children young. I wanted to have a career and do sophisticated things that I thought were sophisticated, like reading a book in a bar and sipping wine. But by the end of the movie, I changed my mind on the bar bit, at least for sure. It was an older movie based on an even older crime, but I had never heard of the murder or the movie before I saw it that night on Showtime. So when I watched the movie, I didn't even know it was based on a real murder. I just found it very shocking, and I was a bit shook up by it. It was definitely unlike anything I'd seen up to that point, and it stuck in my mind even later in adult life. Off and on, throughout the years, I would look for it in video stores, but I never found it available to rent or even buy. I always wanted to see the complete movie. And then later, when I found out it was based on a true crime, I wanted to know everything I could about it. There was a lot of research and a lot of cross-research involved in the making of this podcast. I wanted to get everything as accurate as possible and do this case justice and I hope that I've succeeded. I would like to have a feedback section at the end of the show eventually, so if you would like to listen to more details about that, stay tuned afterwards. Thank you. On to our case. This is the true story of the murder of Roseanne Quinn. It was the basis for the novel Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which was written by Judith Rossner. The novel was the basis for the 1977 movie, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, starring Diane Keaton and Richard Gere. Both the novel and the movie were loosely based on Roseanne's murder. There is another book, Closing Time, by Lacey Fosberg, which says that it is the true story of the Looking for Mr. Goodbar murder. But names were changed, and some parts, especially some dialogue, was fictionalized. In the movie and novel, her name was Teresa. In the book Closing Time, she was called Catherine. Roseanne Quinn was her real name. She was a teacher in New York and taught deaf students. She was really good at this, and her students loved her. She was 28 and pretty, Irish Catholic, 
with long reddish hair and a beautiful smile. Monday, January 1st, 1973, Roseanne spent the morning in bed reading in her small, one-room apartment. It was cold and wintry in New York, and it was quiet on the streets because of the holiday. The previous night, New Year's Eve, she did not go out as she was expecting someone to call, and she waited for him. She read the book Deliverance that night. He did not call, and she did not go out. Around 4 p.m. in the afternoon, New Year's Day, she decided she would not stay in again. She got up, got dressed, and went to a small neighborhood bar called W.M. Tweeds. She knew the owner there, and it was right across the street. The streets were cold and deserted, but it was warm and crowded inside Tweed's bar. Back then, you could smoke inside bars, and people were smoking, and the air was thick with it. John Wayne Wilson was there, but he was calling himself by a different name that night. Gary Guest, the friend he arrived with, had already gone home. Wilson had dark blonde hair, blue eyes, and most people considered him attractive, some thought maybe even handsome. Roseanne Quinn was drinking at the other end of the bar. She stayed down there for a while before venturing out to talk to people. Roseanne would eventually take John Wayne Wilson home with her, and what happened after that would leave Roseanne dead and a bloody mess all over the bed and wall. Before Wilson left, he took one of Roseanne's slips and he rubbed it over anywhere in the apartment where he might have touched something, the doorknob, the elevator, so on. He was naked during the attack on Roseanne, so he took a shower to wash the blood off and put back on the clothes that he was wearing in the bar. He later threw the slip down an incinerator chute in another building. The next day was Tuesday, January 2nd, and school was back in. When Roseanne didn't show up, St. Joseph's School got a substitute teacher. Someone did call her at home, but there was no answer. On Wednesday, when she still didn't show up and there was no answer by phone, the principal sent a teacher to West 72nd Street to knock on her door. There was no answer to his knocking, and he could hear Roseanne's cat inside. He went to find the superintendent of the building. He asked the super if he had seen her, and he said he hadn't. He told him about her not showing up for work for two days and not answering the door or phone. He asked if he could check, as he could hear the cat inside. The super opened the door, and the cat came screaming out and ran past them. The police arrived to a small, disheveled room. There were piles of clothes on the floor and dirty dishes stacked in the sink. Roseanne was lying on the double bed, partially covered by a blue robe. Her skin was white, and her neck was caked with brown, chalky substance that turned out to be blood that had been drying for days and had cracked. Her red hair was spread out above her head, and on the wall were large sprays of blood. Her lips were severely swollen, and there were bruises on both of her cheeks. Her eyes were closed. A five-inch-long carving knife was found on the counter. It was bent in the middle. They thought it looked like it had been cleaned off, but they didn't touch anything. They had to wait for the lab guys to come out. They looked around for anything else, but found nothing. There were a bunch of fat red candles on the windowsill, some Christmas cards, and piles of magazines and books. There was also two drawings, one of Mickey Mouse and one of Donald Duck. The lab guys came in, 
took many pictures, and took any bits of evidence they could find from the robe before they removed that. It was bad under the robe. She was naked and covered in blood. Her skin was slashed and shred from her neck to her stomach. It would turn out to be 18 stab wounds in all. Her body was contorted. There were six stab wounds in her neck and 12 in her stomach. Her jugular vein was completely severed. There were bruises on her arms, wrists, and thighs. And extra disturbing was the fact that a red, fat candle, just like the ones on her windowsill, had been jammed into her vagina. It was a horrific crime scene. Geary Guest had called in sick to work that same day, Wednesday, that Roseanne's body had been discovered. He had also called into work sick on Tuesday as well. His friend John Wayne Wilson had told him he had murdered a woman. He was worried about Wilson, and he was worried about what Wilson had told him. He didn't know what to think. There was nothing in the newspapers. He wondered if Wilson was lying about the murder. He had asked Gary for money to leave town, and Gary wondered if it was just a story to get the money. There was nothing in the newspapers. The detectives learned that Roseanne was a nice girl, a teacher to deaf children at St. Joseph's School, and her parents lived in New Jersey. They were a good middle-class family. No one in the building thought she had a steady boyfriend, and they had no idea who could have done this. When the lab guys were done, they told them they found no fingerprints and that it looked like the apartment had been wiped down. They moved on in the investigation by talking to people at the stores and bars close to her building to see what anyone knew about Roseanne. They heard a lot of, she was a nice girl, from everyone. At a bar called the Copper Hatch, the bartender seemed to think he had last seen her on Monday, January 1st. She was a good kid, he told them, and that was terrible to hear her being killed like that. He couldn't say who she was with, but he did say that she had two different bar-type personalities. She was either really quiet and to herself, or really loud and out there. He also told them she had a limp. Across the street from Copper Hatch was W.M. Tweeds. The owner of the bar, Stephen Resnick, knew Roseanne for years. He told them he probably had last seen her that Monday night and that she had come in around 9 or 10 and left with a group around 1 a.m. to go to the Copper Hatch. He told them he couldn't tell if she was with anyone in particular. He said she had moods where she could talk up a storm and to everyone in sight, and Monday night had been one of those nights. He did tell them about a guy that didn't like Roseanne and had beat her up once. That guy hadn't been there that night, though. He gave them his name and told them they should talk to his bartender when he came in. The bartender told them that Roseanne almost always carried a book and was either quiet in reading or on other nights she would drink Johnny Walker Red and get talkative with people. She would sometimes get loud, but she was never indecent and never went over the line. He did remember her talking to some guy that he didn't know and thought was from out of town. He said he thought that guy was with his brother that night, too. He said there was another guy that he did know, a guy who was down and out and went around drawing pictures for people, sometimes getting a drink or a little bit of cash out of it. The two guys that he thought were brothers 
were talking to the guy that drew the pictures. The older one left, and the younger one struck around and ended up talking to Roseanne later in the night. He told the officer he was a good-looking guy, kind of big, and maybe blonde. He thought maybe he had gone with the group across the street to Copper Hatch that night. He also told him he should talk to that guy that draws the pictures. They now had a long list of people that they needed to find to talk to. There was the guy who beat up Roseanne once. There was the guys from out of town. There was the guy who drew pictures. And many more that had been seen to be with her or had been hanging out with her at the bars at one time or another. When they found the guy who drew pictures eventually one evening at a bar, it was not fruitful at first. He remembered talking to Roseanne that night, but he didn't remember the two new guys with her. He said he had a bad memory, and the only reason he remembered Roseanne was because he had heard about the murder so soon after. The police told him that he had been talking to the men, and maybe he could help them with what they looked like, especially since he was an artist. He told the detectives he would think on it. Roseanne's parents and friends did not want to talk about her life to anyone. Her parents were already hurt by what they had found out about her murder. They didn't want to know any more about New York nights. Her friends didn't want to hurt her parents any more than they had already been hurt, and they didn't want to say anything that might be interpreted as bad things about their friend. Roseanne was born in the Bronx, New York, to John and Roseanne Quinn. She had two brothers and a sister. When Roseanne was 11, her family moved to New Jersey. At age 13, she was diagnosed with scoliosis, and it was bad enough to operate on. There were a lot of accounts that said she had polio and had surgery on her back from that, but from what I could find, it was really scoliosis, and the reason she ended up with a limp is after the back surgery was healed, there was a slight misalignment with her hips. It would be a tough thing for any kid to go through, but I imagine just after moving to a new neighborhood and then being laid up for a very long time after surgery and ending up all of that with a limp had been hard on her socially. Her family was very traditional Irish Catholic. She attended Morris Catholic High School in Denville, New Jersey. She graduated in 1962 and went on to Newark State Teachers College. She graduated from there in 1966 and taught for three years in Newark, New Jersey. In 1969, she began teaching at St. Joseph's School for the Deaf in the Bronx. Her class was eight-year-olds, and she often spent extra time with her students, and the kids loved her. One time, Roseanne had told Stephen Resnick about how she was expected to get married and have kids just like her mom. She told him that she didn't know what she wanted or was even supposed to expect from adult life. She just knew that she wanted to be freer than her mom and she wanted to be independent. In May of 1972, she moved into the studio apartment on West 72nd Street and she was attending night courses and working towards her master's degree. But she did spend some nights at the local bars and she got to know people there. John Wayne Wilson was originally from Indiana. He was born November 3rd, 1949, to Lawrence Wayne Wilson and Marilyn Bassett Wilson. He was divorced from his first wife, Kathy Lux, in 1971, and they had two girls together in Indiana. In 1972, he married Candy Cole in Florida. 
He had an arrest record and he served time in Daytona Beach, Florida for disorderly conduct and Kansas City, Missouri for larceny. In July 1972, he escaped from jail in Miami, where he was sentenced for theft and managed to get back to New York, where he made a living as a street hustler. In Lacey Fosberg's book, Closing Time, she writes about meeting the family of John Wayne Wilson and some things his mother told her about him. His mother said, as a child, he spent a lot of time alone in the attic or outside. Everything was normal until he was 10, his parents said, when he was hit by a car. He was unconscious for several seconds. He had been a traffic control boy outside of school that day when he was hit. He was taken to a doctor who only found bruises and no sign of a concussion. His parents say things did change for him after that, and he had bad headaches and some confusion. He ran away from home multiple times and had been prescribed Dilantin to help him with his headaches and what they called his nervousness. Later, after his arrest, his father would be quoted in the New York Times. He said the family had taken their teenage son twice to Madison State Hospital, a state mental institution, for examination, and on both occasions, nothing was found wrong with the boy. He was always easygoing and didn't care, and to his knowledge, had never been violent. In Lacey Fosberg's book, however, there were more than two trips to the hospital, and Wilson was put on different tranquilizers at different times. From his medical records, she found he had both a three-month and a four-month stay at mental hospitals. One psychiatrist wrote, when faced with stress and his aggressive impulses, his main form of defense at the present time is running away. He feels that if he is unable to do this, he may actually harm someone in the future. He feels unable to handle these impulses at the present time and seems to be getting progressively worse. He had ran away from home many times, but usually was back within a day or two, and one time it was about a week. In the middle of 10th grade, however, he took all the money he had saved from working different jobs, and he left. He didn't come back this time for a very long time. The Thursday after Roseanne's murder, the guy who drew pictures at the bar called the police. He asked for the detective he talked to. He had remembered some things about that night. The detective met him for coffee. His name is still unknown, but the bar artist told the detective about the two men that were at the bar that night. He told him that he remembered the older one more than the younger one, and that the older one had left early before Roseanne came in. The younger one had asked for him to draw some pictures. He had asked him to draw pictures of Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. The detective knew then that he was on to something. Those drawings were found in Roseanne's apartment. Either the man had been in her apartment or he had given her the pictures to take home. Roseanne had met Stephen Resnick when she was first in New York in another area. He was working at a bar then and told her he had plans to own his own bar someday. They gradually became friends. She came to him for advice sometimes. One time, he tried to talk to her about being loud and boisterous. His point was to help her realize that she tended to dominate the conversation when she was like that. He was trying to help, but she was depressed about that and became a bit defeated. He wished he had never said anything. One night in 1967, she came into the bar he was working at, and it was a quiet night. While she and Stephen were talking, an older guy slid down the bar and sat next to Roseanne. He told Steve he wanted another. Stephen went back behind the bar to pour him a drink. A few minutes later, Roseanne suddenly shrieked. 
The man had taken out his penis and was rubbing it on her leg. You goddamn son of a bitch, she yelled loudly. The man cowered back, but Roseanne reached out and slapped him hard across the face. The man put his hands up to protect his face. His penis was still dangling out of his pants. She threw her drink in his face. You creep, what do you think you're doing? Steve went to the man and took his arm to drag him outside. The man was whimpering like a dog and paralyzed. Roseanne reached out and slapped him hard two more times across the face. Then the man started to cry and suddenly ran out of the bar. Steve was worried about Roseanne. He told her she should let him handle that kind of thing. He was going to throw the guy out, but she hadn't given him a chance, and she kept hitting him. He told her the guy was sad and pathetic. Roseanne told him he got what he deserved, and she wished she could have done more. In June 1970, John Wayne Wilson was 20, and he was in New York. He met Gary Guest one night outside of a bar. At first, he just walked by, and for some reason, they both noticed each other. Wilson had been doing some street hustling to get by, but he wasn't thinking about that when he saw Gary. He wasn't sure what he saw, and neither was Gary. They ended up taking a long walk together and talking. Then they went to Gary's place and spent some intimate time together. By the end of the night, Gary was thinking he might just be in love with a man that he knew was a con artist, and Wilson thought he might be onto a good thing. Gary was 15 years older than him and successful. He had his own penthouse apartment, a closet full of nice clothes, and a healthy bank account. They became friends and met up to play pool or go to the movies. Gary usually saw Wilson two, three, or even four times a week. But sometimes a week or two would go by and he hadn't heard from him. When he did show up again, he would ask about it. I had to go out of town, John Wayne Wilson said. It was matter of fact. He had to get out of town. After several months of being friends, he did let him know what he did for a living, but he didn't go into details. Now, this part is in the book Closing Time by Lacey Fosberg, and she did say some dialogue was made up for the book, but I believe this is something Gary Gist told the author. One time, Wilson asked Gary to go to the American Museum of Natural History with him. Gary asked him why he wanted to go there, and Wilson said he liked dinosaurs. While they were there, he told him a story from when he was in grade school. Wilson said a teacher wrote pterodactyl, spelling it wrong on the blackboard. She spelled it T-E-R-R-I-D-A-C-T-Y-L-E. He told her she spelled it wrong, and she said she hadn't. They argued about this, and she punished him for it. After school, he looked it up in a book on prehistoric animals, and he was right. It was pterodactyl, spelled P-T-E-R-O-D-A-C-T-Y-L. He told his mother about this, and she told him school teachers were uppity. They always think they're better than everyone else. Over time, John Wayne Wilson told Gary Gist more about his past. He told him about the terrible times in the institutions. Gary felt for him and wanted to help. The most important thing he felt he could do was show Wilson that he could trust him. Sometime in the early part of 1971, Wilson moved in with Gary. The idea was for him to stop the street hustling and look for a decent job. He would have the time with no pressure if he moved into Gary's place. He stayed there for a few months, but eventually became disappointed in the lack of good jobs available to him, with no diploma and no experience. One night, Wilson just packed up a suitcase and left. There was no note at all. He was just gone. In the, in the last year or so of Roseanne's life, Steve Resnick had seen her with some boyfriends.
They were around longer than the others had been, but not many of them were significant or lasting. In fact, none of them really were. She asked him his opinion on all of her boyfriends. He never really liked any of them, or at best thought they were just okay. One night, May 6, 1972, something different happened. Some said it was Roseanne's fault and she should have known better. Others said it was Freddie's fault and Roseanne was just a victim. Freddie Watson was 5'10", black, unemployed, and known to be dangerous. He had a reputation for a violent temper and he liked guns. It was a slow night and the bartender remembered Freddie approaching Roseanne. She didn't want anything to do with him at first, but eventually let him buy her a drink. They ended up talking and even laughing. Later that night, Roseanne left on her own, but a few minutes later, Freddie followed her and went into her building. Around midnight, a neighbor of Roseanne's heard yelling and screams coming from her apartment. When she went out into the hallway, she saw Freddie, half undressed, yelling and pulling on his clothes. He screamed, you motherfucker, and ran down the stairs. The neighbor found Roseanne crying and holding her face. She was bruised and beaten up. The neighbor knew who Freddie was from the neighborhood and asked Roseanne why she would bring him back to her apartment. She told her he was the worst kind, and didn't she know that? Why would she bring him here? Roseanne just kept saying she didn't know. The neighbor told her it was okay now. It was over, and she would know better now. Roseanne went to the police station the next day and reported an assault and attempted robbery. Freddie Watson was arrested, but a judge ended up dismissing the charges. The neighbors said they heard more sounds like the one that night about two weeks later. Roseanne didn't want their help, they decided. They said it was some sort of regular thing about every two weeks or so. The neighbor's boyfriend told her that he thought Roseanne wanted it this way and that she liked rough sex. John Wayne Wilson appeared back in Gary Guest's life out of the blue, as if nothing happened. He called him up and told him that he'd gotten in trouble in Florida with some robberies that he took part in, with some acquaintances that he had met there. He met his soon-to-be second wife as well while he was in Florida and told Gary all about it. He asked Gary for his help with a lawyer and with the wedding, and Gary flew down to Florida for both of those. In May, Wilson was sentenced to one year in jail. Wilson wrote to Gary, and at first his letters were positive about things he was looking forward to in the future. By the last week of June, the letters turned depressive. He was more and more miserable. In July, Gary got a call from Wilson. He had escaped and was calling from a phone booth. As per closing time, the book, Gary bought Wilson and his new wife, Candy, two plane tickets to New York under different names. The three of them stayed at Gary's for months, and things were good. But eventually, Candy was pregnant, and Wilson changed and had some issues. John Wayne Wilson got a regular job because of the pregnancy, but after taxes and everything, his check was very small, and he felt very poorly. He felt like he should be doing better to be a husband and a father. Things were bad for a while, and in December, he told Candy she had to go home to Miami. 
Candy said he told her she had to because he didn't want anything to happen to her. Soon it was Christmas time and both Roseanne and Wilson went home for Christmas. Roseanne went to New Jersey and no one noticed anything unusual during her stay. She told some people she hoped 1973 would be a better year. Wilson went home to Indiana thanks to Geary. He was also able to buy presents for his family with Geary's credit card. He came back to New York in time for New Year's Eve, and he and Geary went to Times Square to watch the new year come in. Roseanne spent New Year's Eve alone. She read Deliverance, the book that they had found on the side of her bed. The next day she stayed in bed and continued to read the book. She had almost finished the book when she got up to get dressed and go out. That same day, the day of the murder, around the same time Roseanne got up and got dressed to go out, John Wayne Wilson and Gary Guest went out to dinner near 72nd Street. Wilson suggested they stop for a drink after dinner. They had never been to Tweed's before. At some point that night, Geary left Tweed's and John Wayne Wilson stayed behind. At some point, Roseanne and John were introduced to each other and they ended up talking. And at some point in the night, someone suggested they all move it over to the bar, Copper Hatch, across the street. And they all agreed it was a good idea and ended up going. And sadly, at some point, they both left the Copper Hatch together and went to Roseanne's apartment. No one truly knows what happened after they got there. Wilson told several different but similar stories after he was arrested. And we'll get into more of that here soon. But going back to directly after the murder and Wilson giving Gary money to go to Miami and Gary's looking in the newspapers and he's trying to find out if this is even real and if Wilson actually killed anyone. Well, the police at that point are still looking at every angle and their number one suspect is still Freddie Watson, but they can't find him. And on Friday, it finally comes out in the papers and Geary is able to read it and realize that all of this is true. And this was in the Daily News. Teachers slain in West Side Flat. The body of an attractive young teacher who had dedicated her life to helping the handicapped was found naked, apparently raped, stabbed 18 times, and brutally beaten in her small West Side apartment, police disclosed yesterday. The victim, red-haired Roseanne Quinn, 28-year-old daughter of a New Jersey executive, was found sprawled on a convertible bed in her studio apartment at 253 West 72nd Street between Broadway and West End Avenue. Deputy Chief Medical Examiner John F. Fury, who performed the autopsy, said she had been stabbed six times in the stomach and 12 times in the neck. He said she had been beaten or punched severely in the face. A statuette of her likeness was found lying across her face. Although the discovery was made on Wednesday, reporters didn't learn of the murder until yesterday. 
Through some oversight, the homicide was not considered important enough to make the principal case sheet, which is required by the Communications Bureau for the chief inspector. Apparently, the West 83rd Street station failed to report the case. Geary read this and other newspaper accounts, and when he got a call from Wilson, he read some of them to him over the phone. The newspapers mentioned that the police were looking for two men seen in the bars that night with Roseanne, but no one knew who they were. Freddie Watson was still a suspect, but they did not mention him by name in the papers. Geary sent Wilson money to fly home to Indiana at his request, and Wilson went to stay with his brother. Then the article with the composite sketch came out on Sunday, January 7th. The headline was, Police Sketch Man Sought as Link in Teacher Slaying. After questioning dozens of men and women friends of the slain, red-haired Roseanne Quinn, police artists late yesterday completed a composite sketch of a man who can assist greatly in the investigation into the teacher's murder. Roseanne, who was 28, was last seen New Year's Day with a mysterious escort, but Deputy Inspector Richard Nicastro would not disclose whether the composite represented her companion or a person who could possibly lead detectives to the companion. Nicastro would only say that the wanted man could shed light on the investigation. He is described as a male of white, 28 to 32 years of age, 6 feet, 165 pounds, with light brown hair that has the wet look and a light complexion, who is more Nordic than Latin. Nicastro emphasized that the man was not a suspect. The friendly, attractive Roseanne, who had dedicated her working life to teaching small, deaf children, was found naked, stabbed, and beaten to death on Wednesday in her small apartment at 253 West 72nd Street. A statuette likeness of Roseanne, sculpted by a friend, was atop her head. But Lieutenant Herman Klug, commander of the 4th District Homicide Assault Squad, said there didn't appear to be any symbolic significance in its placing. Geary had been afraid for Wilson, and he was afraid how everything was going to turn out. But after reading that newspaper article and seeing the likeness of himself in the sketch, he was now afraid for himself. He contacted his lawyer and went through all of his options, and he knew that he had to go forward to the authorities, that there really was no choice. There was a lot of newspaper coverage on the arrest. Uh, here's one example. Hoosier indicted for slaying of teacher. A 23-year-old Shelbyville, Indiana man was indicted here Wednesday by a grand jury charging him with the beating and stabbing death of a New York City school teacher. The grand jury indicted John Wayne Wilson with intent to kill Roseanne Quinn in her Westside apartment January 2nd by beating her with his fist and stabbing her with a knife. Miss Quinn, 28, a teacher of deaf children, was found dead of multiple stab wounds. Wilson was arrested in Indianapolis last week at the home of a brother and turned over to New York authorities after waiving extradition. 
He was remanded to the custody of a court psychiatrist last Wednesday. Assistant District Attorney John Keenan said the psychiatrist found Wilson to be mentally competent and therefore able to stand trial. There are, as I said before, a few different accounts of what happened in Roseanne's apartment after they were alone. And of course, all of the accounts are from John Wayne Wilson because Roseanne unfortunately was unable to give her account. The first one, it goes like this. He says, first we bawled and then finished, he said. They were lying on the wrinkled sheets when she went nuts and started pushing me physically to hurry and get dressed and leave. She was very nasty, a complete reversal of a few minutes before. I have problem with my mind and I often flip out, not knowing whether walls, people, etc. are real. I hear things. I think sometimes I can even fly. Well, she started shoving me and I blew up. Not mad. I wasn't mad or anything. Just very cold and hurt. I grabbed her and held her on the bed and tried to talk to her to get a reason for her sudden rejection of me. She started saying, kill me, kill me, please. I had no intention of killing anyone when I went there. Then she said I was crazy. She could see it. She tried to get up, so I grabbed her around the throat and started choking her. I choked her for a long time. But when I flip out, I can't see too well, and I thought she was still alive. I then took her pants, which were on the floor next to the bed, and choked her with them for a long while. I hit her a few more times, and then I went to the kitchen and got a paring knife, and I stabbed her several times, once hitting the jugular vein. The blood spurted all over the wall and around her face and behind the bed. He got to his feet. He stood in the middle of the room by the bed. And the end of the bed, he stood there breathing and breathing and looking at the school teacher with her eyes open, staring in terror, and her body spewing out blood. He reached out and laid his fingertips tenderly on her eyelids and moved them slightly, closed them. She didn't look good that way, he said later, and I didn't want her watching me. Then his body covered with blood, he went to the bathroom and turned on the shower. He washed himself and the water flowed down the drain, red. It was 3.30. He went back into the room and with the faucet still running behind him, he picked up her turquoise blue bathrobe. He laid it across the wounds of her body. He said he thought she looked better that way. Then he went around the apartment turning over chairs and emptying drawers. He picked up the large white statue of her and in a last surge of anger, he threw it hard at her face. There's a lot I don't remember, he said, ending the story, and I just walked around all night. There was another story that he told later, and it went like this. They went up to her apartment, he said, and they began to smoke dope. They leaned against the pillows on the sofa bed, and after a while, Roseanne lit the candles, and he started to touch her, and she reached in between his legs to caress his body. Then he got undressed, and lying down, her hands moved down his belly past his hair and found his penis. She rubbed it over and rolled it around, and it was deflated like a balloon, deflated balloon, and he, licking her neck, whispered, sorry, sorry. He'd had too much to drink, but she felt it more, rubbed and pulled, 
but it didn't grow or swell or turn hard, and then, as sure as spit and fire, the atmosphere began to change. She got angry, mean, he said, and before he knew it, she was hysterical, screeching at him to get dressed and hurry up and leave, and she said, you're just like all the rest, you suck, and he yelled at her, bitch, and she said, yeah, get me, get me, and he blew up. He wasn't mad or anything, he just got cold and hurt. It hurt him, what she said. Yeah, my brothers will get you, she said. And he grabbed her and held her on the bed and squeezed her. And she squirmed and moaned beneath him and mumbled, kill me, kill me, please. And then she began to try to push him off and to fight back. But he had her by the throat and he choked her tight with his hands. And he leaned over and grabbed her underpants from the floor. He wound them around her neck and pulled in each direction. Then he got the knife and he came back to the bed and sprawled over her body and stabbed her again and again. 18 times in the neck and belly. And that's how he ended that last story. For the most part after that, he went over, the same parts that he went over and over again was that he was unable to uh, get completely erect due to the drinking that he did that night. And she insulted him and made fun of his manhood and he got angry and basically saw red and uh, and he killed her. That part was consistent over and over. So you can at least um, imagine that that part of the story probably did happen. Another article later on in f- the beginning of February told about how um, things were going as far as what they were going to do in court and uh, what the defense was going to do. And there's two of them. The first one says, Lawyers to use insanity plea in teacher's death. The lawyers for John Wayne Wilson, accused of the murder of teacher Roseanne Quinn in her West Side apartment last January 2nd, will rely on the defense that their client was insane, according to court papers filed Thursday. In a notice filed with the state, Supreme Court Justice Gerald P. Culkin, Wilson's attorneys, and John Nicholas Inazani said their defense would rely on a section of the penal code which provides that the evidence of mental disease or defect excludes a person from criminal responsibility. Pre-trial motions in the case are set for February 15th. Miss Quinn, 28, a teacher of deaf children, was found dead of multiple stab wounds. Wilson, 23, of Shelbyville, Indiana, was arrested in Indianapolis on a warrant after an extensive investigation that included interviews with her friends and used a composite sketch of a material witness. Wilson subsequently was indicted on the murder charge, and he is being held without bail. Another article says, Defense Revealed. And that basically says the same thing that they're going to uh, they're going to uh, rely on their defense in the section of the penal code, which provides evidence of mental disease or defect that excludes a person from criminal responsibility. So before we move on to what happens with John Wayne Wilson after he's arrested, I just wanted to say that there was uh, some really outstanding detective work, some outstanding police work in this case. And the murderer was a drifter, and he had no connection to Roseanne Quinn. They had just met that night. And the only person that knew about the murder besides John Wayne Wilson was his friend Gary Guest. And he thought it probably wasn't true at first. 
The police detectives finding the man who frequented the nearby bars and saw Roseanne that night, along with some other men, did remember the face of Gary Guest, and he helped the uh, police artist with the drawing. But the thing is, is that if they hadn't talked to hundreds of people and found out who she was with that night, and no one knew who that was, they just saw them, uh, and were able to get a drawing of one of the men led to finding the other man who actually committed the murder, which is really some amazing police work. Uh, on January 11th, 1973, there was a picture in the New York Times of the police commissioner, Patrick V. Murphy, and he was praising the 13 detectives for their outstanding detective work in a case that he said had generated a lot of fear and concern throughout the city. Uh, there was no information at the start, and they had to literally interview, I'm sorry, interview literally hundreds of people. John Wayne Wilson was supposed to uh, have a neurological examination to determine if he had ever suffered brain damage as a child. And on April 19th, he was taken to Bellevue Hospital for this. He stayed there for something like 16 days in late April and on into early May, and the neurologist failed to appear, and the tests were never administered, and the doctors didn't come. On May 4th, his bed was needed for another patient, and he was taken back on the green prison bus, and uh, the next thing he knew, he was back in the tombs, and even though he wasn't supposed to be there, uh, it was too crowded in the psychiatric ward on the 10th floor where he was supposed to go. So instead, contrary to orders, he was put in a regular cell on the 4th floor. And here he, uh, he had some problems. And so it goes that he was telling a guard that he was going to commit suicide or he wanted to commit suicide or something to that effect. And the guard said, oh, yeah, do you want me to bring you some sheets? And the guard uh, stalked off. He returned a few minutes later with a pile of sheets and threw them into uh, his cell. And not long afterward, at 12.15 in the afternoon, John Wayne Wilson tossed one of the sheets over a ceiling bar in the cell. And his other inmates yelled, trying to alert the guard down the hall. He tied a noose around his neck and he stepped off the bed. And he hung himself on May 5th. 1973. There was an article in the newspaper, Accused Slayer Takes Own Life in Prison Cell. A Miami man charged with brutal New Year's Eve slaying of a young teacher hanged himself Saturday afternoon in his cell in the Manhattan House of Detention. A spokesman for the Department of Corrections said John Wayne Wilson, 23, was found hanging from a knotted sheet in his cell around 12.40 p.m. He said that Wilson had only been returned to the prison Friday after undergoing mental competency and neurological tests at Bellevue Hospital. Wilson was charged with the murder of Roseanne Quinn last December 31st in her West Side Manhattan apartment where she lived alone. She was bludgeoned to death with a small statue of herself. Wilson was the sixth inmate to commit suicide in a city correctional facility this year. 
And as you can tell from that article, um, some of the things are wrong in there. Um, she was obviously, the murder happened January 1st into January 2nd. And um, she wasn't bludgeoned to death with the statue. But a lot of the newspaper accounts um, had some of the facts wrong back in the day. And uh, it's amazing that into May, so long after the murder, they were still saying some of these things that were that were wrong. After John Wayne Wilson uh, took his own life, there was a, a big outcry about the fact that uh, he wasn't properly supervised and that uh, they basically uh, let it happen. And apparently there had been some other um, suicides as well before his. So there was a, a lot of uh, coverage on this and a lot of outcry. Uh, on June 22nd, in the Daily News, they were saying um, something about that. They said, although a prompt psychiatric evaluation was important, the board said, the new attorneys managed to arrange an interview by a private psychiatrist no earlier than March 3rd. Eventually, they also got a court order for a neurological evaluation, but did not press hard enough for early tests, the board charged. During Wilson's 16-day stay at Bellevue in late April and early May, the neurologist failed to appear. Supreme Court Justice Arnold Freeman, who had ordered the Bellevue tests, displayed a lack of judicial concern by failing to check up to see if the evaluations were being carried out, the board's report said. Although prison doctors had earlier diagnosed him as a schizophrenic and suicidal, he was not placed in the mental observation ward, which was overcrowded. Instead, he was put in an inadequately watched cell where he was found hanged the next day, according to the report. On May 9, 1973, there was a newspaper article from Indiana, Writes Thursday for Teacher's Alleged Killer. A young Shelbyville father charged in New York City with the New York with the New Year's Day bludgeon death of a schoolteacher was found dead in his New York City detention cell over the weekend. New York police listed the death of John Wayne Wilson, 23, whose residence here was listed as 226 West Locust Street as suicide. New York City sources and local reports said Mr. Wilson hanged himself in his jail cell. His body was found Saturday. Mr. Wilson was charged in New York in the beating and stabbing death of Roseanne Quinn, 28, a teacher of deaf children for the past three years at the 102-year-old St. Joseph School in New York. New York police said they had evidence that linked Mr. Wilson to the case. He was arrested at his brother's apartment in Indianapolis by Indianapolis police and New York City police. Taken to New York Detention Center a short time later, and had been there ever since, awaiting trial. Miss Quinn's body was found in her apartment January 2nd, the report said, and had been dead about 24 hours, and had been stabbed 14 to 18 times. Mr. Wilson was unemployed. Born here November 3rd, 1949, Mr. Wilson was the son of Wayne and Marilyn Bassett Wilson. His parents survived here along with his wife, the former Candy Cole, of Miami, Florida, two children, Lori Ann and Amy Jo Wilson of Shelbyville, a grandmother, Mrs. Gertrude Wilson of Moscow, and three brothers and sisters, Maurice, Terry Sue, and Judy Lynn Wilson, all of Shelbyville. Mr. Wilson was a member of the Calvary Baptist Church.
It's a really, truly tragic story uh, for both of them, I think. Obviously, it's horrible what he did to Roseanne, but his story is very tragic as well. Uh, I wish there was more about Roseanne to tell you. Um, unfortunately, nobody really that was close to her wanted to talk too much um, in any of the press or the books. So uh, we've gleamed as much as we possibly can on her. Um, like I said, I would love to start a feedback section at the end of each episode. Um, I'd love for you guys to send a message and let me know uh, if you have any thoughts or feelings on any of the episodes, um, or the cases, if you know anything additional about the cases, uh, case suggestions for the future, anything like that. I'm very interested. Um, There'll be a contact uh, thing on my website and there'll be uh, a message uh, area on the Facebook uh, website <clears throat> or the Facebook page. And as we are approaching Christmas here, I wish you all a very Merry Christmas, uh, Happy Hanukkah or whatever you choose to celebrate. I wish you Happy Holidays and definitely a Happy New Year. I am working towards the goal of getting out an, a new episode each and every week sometime in the new year. I'm, uh, you can find me, as I said, on the website, Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast, or on Facebook under Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. And I'm also on Patreon if you wish to support the podcast at uh, Patreon slash Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Mm -hmm.